Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle Podcast. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Los Angeles studio bass player, Paul Ill. But first of all, I just came back from the Taxi Road Rally, and I have to say it was one of the best conferences, music conferences, that I've ever been to. Great vibe. Lots of people willing to share ideas and share critiques and just share any experiences they have, and that's kind of unusual in the music business sometimes. One of the things that I did there was to hold a social media session, and there was a lot of questions that came up that were kind of surprising, but that being said, I thought it was appropriate to maybe go over some of the common social media mistakes, and this is something that I talked about yesterday, and something that is really important, and it seems that enough people don't understand. So, what's the biggest social media mistake? Well, it's not having a strategy. A lot of people just get on social media and don't know why. They're there because people say, well, you have to be on Facebook, or you have to be on Instagram, or you have to be on YouTube. Well, in order to do this well, you really have to have a strategy, and you're doing it for promotion. You're promoting yourself, you're promoting your brand, you're promoting your music. You're not just there for using it. So, it's completely different, and it's a completely different outlook. The second thing is too many social media accounts. Here again, we come to where someone will say, well, you have to be on Instagram. Well, you're on Facebook already and you're really good on Facebook. So then you spend more time on Instagram or Twitter or you name it and you take the time away from the social media network that you're really proficient at and you're good at. One of the things that we've found is it's best to concentrate on fewer social media outlets. And that way you can get really good at one and then eventually at another and maybe another. There's a limit to the number of social media accounts that you can do only because we have limited time. And let's face it, we'd all rather create than we'd rather spend time on social media. So don't have too many accounts. I would say the best thing is to stay with three at first. That includes your website. I'm going to include that as a social media account because it's something that you have to keep up with like social media. The second one would be your mailing list, of course. The third would be either YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. And you may want to have a fourth, but I wouldn't go beyond that where it would be maybe Facebook and Instagram or Facebook and YouTube or YouTube and Instagram. Whatever the combination, you can't have too many because what will happen is you'll just not have enough time in the day to do the things that you really want to do. The next thing is worrying about views and followers. This no longer matters as it once did. One of the things that used to happen is record labels would look at who had large followings and that's who they would sign for a long period of time. But then everyone got kind of clever about it and began to game the system somewhat by buying fake followers or fake views or fake streams, whatever the case. So now that means less than ever. What really counts is engagement. If you have a lot of engagement and especially a lot of shares, that counts more than anything these days. Another mistake is always constantly talking about yourself. And what that means is everything is me, 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 me. And occasionally it should be about somebody else. It should be about fans, your fans, your followers. It should be repeating some things from some friends of yours, reposting. Anything like that, it's important that you get your message out, but that can't be the only thing on social media. The next thing is excessive or irrelevant hashtags. 
There are a limited number of hashtags that you can use on most platforms. Instagram being the exception where you can get away with five to I've seen as high as 11. But that being said, you want hashtags that really mean something. You don't want to put hashtags that are vanity hashtags. You want them to be used as search tags. So make sure that you put hashtags up that really mean something because otherwise they're useless to you. Another thing is sharing too much in too short a time. The problem is that our news feeds are special to us and we hold them close to us. And when someone seems to take up your news feed, that upsets us a lot. So usually the best way to do this, if you know you're going to be posting a lot, is to warn your followers. Say, I have a lot to post today. I'm at a conference. I'm in a session. I'm in something that's really good. So expect a lot of posts today. And that way, at least you'll warn them so they'll know to skip over you instead of just being upset with you. Usually one to two posts a day is the most you can get away with on just about any platform, no matter what anybody tells you. Twitter may be a little bit more, but even then, you have to be really, really relevant with what you're saying. And finally, posting without proofreading. You know what? Grammar counts, even on social media. So you should proofread everything and you should proofread your spelling. Make sure that everything makes sense and is helpful. You don't want to post anything that someone might not want to read. So make sure that you proofread, make sure the grammar is perfect as well as the spelling before you actually post it. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, on the audio side of things, let's talk about headphones. Medea Research found out the headphone usage is somewhat different than we'd expect. First of all, 70% of consumers use headphones these days. Why? Well, because of smartphones. Most of the music that we listen to these days come from smartphones, and people are upgrading their headphones. Now, here's what's interesting. Sony used to be the leader in headphones in terms of market share. Now it's Apple Brands. And that includes EarPods, AirPods, and Beats. They have 24% of the market as compared to Sony's 22%. This is followed by Panasonic, Bose, Skullcandy, Sennheiser, AKG, and Bang & Olufsen. The majority of all headphone users are male, except for Apple. Apple has an equal share of male to female. Now, in terms of ratings of the quality of headphones, it seems that Sennheiser always comes out on top, followed by Audio-Technica, Biodynamic, Shure, Grado, Bose, AKG, Sony, Panasonic, and Philips. And of course, those of us in the studio, we know that we're using either Sennheiser's or Audio-Technica's or Biodynamic's, or in the old days, it was Fostex. Fostex had a really big market share for a time there. But now when it comes to pro-level headphones, we don't really see too much from Apple there. It's mostly on the consumer side that those things are big. My guest today is one of my oldest and dearest friends. 
Los Angeles studio bass player Paul Ill. Through the years, Paul has played with a wide variety of great artists, both in the studio and on the road, including Tina Turner, Pink, Gwen Stefani, and Alicia Keys, and more recently, Bob Weir, Mike Love, and producer Linda Perry. Paul has been in the podcast before, way back on podcast number three, and then in number 91. But I wanted to get him back on to discuss the changing scene for studio musicians here in Los Angeles. In the interview, we spoke about changes in studio musician work and how the projects are actually getting longer, trends in recording, how jam sessions have changed, difference in player skills, and much more. We spoke via phone from his home in Los Angeles. It's been a couple of years since we did this, and I want to find out from you how things have changed in music as you see it in the last couple of years. Well, first of all, let me say thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I'm a huge fan, a lifelong friend, and I really have immense respect for the conduit of information that you supply, that you provide to people. It's a great thing. So let's start there. Uh, That's a pretty broad-reaching subject, and I have a rather myopic view of it. I'm no expert like you, uh, and a lot of your guests on the podcast certainly see a bigger picture probably than I see. I'll tell you this. One of the big changes I've seen is there is a return to recording more than one or two, three songs at once. Uh, What I mean by that is from my principal role in my own life, how do I say this? One of the things I do most frequently is play uh, bass on recordings. It's a highly specialized job. And for many, many years, there were many people who could have a very reasonable life and an identity just playing bass. Uh, as studio musicians in the major music markets. Such is not the case. I mean, I've had to have five income streams. My dear friend Mike Redman wrote a book for Hal Leonard, and it was about the, the, the specific subject I was interviewed for it is, is how many income streams do you have? How many hats do you wear? You know, wearing numerous hats. I wear a lot of hats. So let's talk changes in studio musician work as it is right now. What trends it's positive is, is I have been asked to play on full length recording projects more frequently in the last six to 12 months than I had in the three years previous. In the last six to 12 months, I've done um, Mike Love's new solo album for BMG. And we did quite a few tunes. We did more songs than were required for release. And I did Sylvie Vartan's tribute to Johnny Halliday. They were both for the producer, Michael Lloyd, who is a a wonderful man, an incredibly talented, gifted producer, and a real, real bright light uh, in music to this day. He's been around forever. You should Google him. Uh, He was in the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. He's been very busy in film music. He produced You Light Up My Life when he was very young. I recently had a similar experience with Linda Perry, where I was brought in to play on Natasha Bedingfeld's new record. And instead of just doing one song in a day, I did four. And that was very exciting. Uh, And there'll probably be more. In addition, Jack Douglas, the the producers that most frequently hire me, I've done full-length records for Jack Douglas again, indie stuff that he's been producing for artists. So... That's one trend that I think everybody should take note of. And to encourage people to record more than one song at once, 
may not be necessary because a lot of artists that I work with and in my own identity as a recording artist that we're the, I'm the brand, like it's my band or, or it's my music that I want to put my name on. There is little or no use for a full length product right now. Another trend I see is people recording enough songs, say for an EP, what would be called an EP now, a digital EP, which is actually a full length record from the old vinyl days. Right, Bobby? About 40 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's what it used to be. Sure. Yeah. So it's essentially the album format, which is a really exciting trend. I noticed it. Lefsetz mentioned it in his letter a couple of days ago, and I went, ah, you know, he's on to something there, Bob. Hit it right there. Uh, they record basically an EP, whether it's an artist that's capable of touring the world. Now, I don't play with him, but I'm a huge fan of Chris, of Chris Stills. And Chris makes EP format recordings every time he does a recording. But on the back of the EP... Another trend I see people doing now is instead of just recording one song at a time, throwing all their eggs in that basket and saying, okay, let's do a video for this. Let's hope that this takes off and has a footprint digitally that, that has some legs, you know, that um, we can get some streams on this, get some views on YouTube, that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of people are doing an EP length of song, roughly five songs if they're pop song formats, right? Mm -hmm. And they... Uh, then they, they'll pick three of the tunes. Ironically, all of them that I've had this experience with picked three of the tunes and they did lyric videos for each tune. They got with very clever graphics people and embedded the lyrics into the video for three of the songs. Then they went, in, they went even further and did 30 second, under 30 second edits of each song Right, maybe the verse or the or the, the you know a very very um, a very very a very telling turn of a phrase in a in 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 the bridge or whatever or and most often they use the chorus or the title of the song, and they'll make a heavy use of those thirty second edited pieces of the lyric video in their um, in their social media campaign essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to that. I'm, I'm having a senior moment. The uh, Bob Dylan tune where he's in he's in the village with the lyrics on the on the board on, on the on the cardboard. And he's throwing them on the ground while Allen Ginsberg runs around the back. Johnny's in the basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm in the pavement thinking about the government. Yeah. That yeah. Dylan tune. It goes back that like short. And he he just had basement government written on those things. He that was like, gosh, 60 64 maybe and we're back to that now it's come full swing to where people will watch just 30 seconds of a song or, or create excuse me a 30 second uh segment of a song to introduce themselves as an artist to the to the to their to their uh, uh to their prospective listener let me just stop you there for a second and ask some questions one of the things that i've recently posted about because I've been analyzing music that, uh, let's just say popular music, whatever is the hottest stuff. And a number of trends have showed up. Two trends are that many songs start with choruses and there is always a hard ending. And songs are getting shorter and shorter, in many cases two minutes and sometimes even less. The reason for all this is streaming. 
especially f- short songs, because you get paid the same whether somebody listens for a minute 50 or 350. So better to have them play the song twice rather than have them only play it once, if you know what I mean. Have you seen anything like that? Well, interestingly enough, Subterranean Homesick Blues is two minutes, 19 seconds long. Okay? That's the song I was referring to. Right, right. Right? And think about what I just did. I was capable of listening in detail to what you say, right? And on my handheld device, I was capable of going on Safari and putting in Johnny's in the basement and finding my way to the Bob Dylan song past a couple of things, right? Mm -hmm. A, A child's book, whatever. What I think about what you just said is, Think about the lengths of the original Beatles songs and the experience that people in our age group had with the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Now, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Did you? Yeah, I did. Sure. Okay. Nothing they played was over three minutes, I don't think. And if it was, it barely edged over three minutes, right? Well, there were stipulations from radio, and the stipulations were that they wanted to play more songs, so they wanted them shorter, so you were in the 3 to 3.30 minute uh, length all the time. But what also happened with radio is usually there was a long lead-in, or at least a 10-second lead-in, before it got you to a vocal, and then there's a fade-out at the end. The reason for that was it was something for the DJs to talk over. And now that's no longer the case. It's no longer needed. So now we, we find song structure changed considerably where in some cases we're starting right off in the chorus and there's never a fade. Now it's usually a hard ending. So I'm just curious. And this is on, you know, top 40 songs that, that are popular. I wouldn't even say top 40, but let's just say the most popular songs that are out there now. Do you see that in what you're playing on? Absolutely, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I had the, 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 the great honor of playing on Todd Morse's last solo, uh, his, his, his debut solo outing called Late Bloomer. Todd and I played together with Juliet Lewis 10, 12 years ago. He has remained active with Juliet, and he's also one of the guitar players in Offspring. He's, he's a really, really gifted artist and a wonderful man. Todd... Uh, his songwriting definitely represents this aesthetic. I can, I can recall some of the songs now when we were recording them, he would, uh, he would say, we're going to embed a click track here because the chorus is going to happen acapella. And then we're going to start a verse with a snare drum on four. So guys, I'm going to sing the chorus over the click track. Right. And then uh, drummer, you hit the snare drum on four. And then that's guys, that's where you're, your performance begins, right? Start reading your chart there, basically, when he was teaching us the songs, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had that on the on the chart, like intro, eight beats, two bars, and then he was explaining. So he, I have the distinct memory of doing that. Um, and I see that affecting my own creative process, uh, immensely so. Um, what we're talking about is a very mainstream world. The, the other thing that I see changing is, is right before you called this morning for me to do the podcast is I was speaking to a dear friend of mine who runs the Monday night Viper room jams and they're extremely successful here, here in, in LA. Uh, and his jams are peopled by people, by, by peopled by artists in their twenties and thirties predominantly who are the new generation 
of musicians who are out there doing whatever is left of what you might call a top 40 or general business gig. Everything from they play a lot of country bars in the Southwest uh, where they have to play current, whatever's current on the, on the, on the, you know, the, the, the country charts, they, they have to be playing those songs that week as they come out, the big hits and everything to, they back up um, the, the, the runners up from the TV uh, singer shows like American Idol and, and all that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the voice and stuff like that. They, some of them end up in really big major touring bands playing with huge artists. Like, Eric will say, yeah, Gaga's drummer is going to be down. And sometimes really well-known artists like members of NXF are frequent at this jam. I go to it. My, my guys, like we're, we're these, as, these, as old as uh, the guys and gals I play with could be parents to some of these people. And we go down because the level of musicianship is so high. And those people, when I sit there and listen to songs, and I have to watch the set list on the wall, say they publish it on the wall mm-hmm. for the musicians. They, they don't rehearse. Everybody's responsible for learning the song exactly. The, 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 uh, the link that you're sent, the version you're sent, you've got to learn. And they do everything from classic rock. They rarely do, they rarely do pre-British invasion stuff, right? They rarely, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear a Johnny Cash song there or a Buddy Holly song or a, a Coaster song or something, but they do a pretty broad reach of stuff. And uh, in that element, when you hear, you can hear the differences in arrangements a lot because they'll go from Deep Purple to Beyonce. They'll go from Smoke on the Water to Beyonce just because they can, right? And it's highly eclectic. And they're essentially, they'll cycle a lot of of players through in the evening. Like, people only have to learn two or three songs for the night. There's a house band, but, you know, there's a lot of people that participate. And I I hear the differences. I also think that hip-hop and dance culture is a huge influence on the kind of songwriting we're talking about. But there's a whole other aspect of this, and that's to when an artist is established, a new artist, and they have an incredible immediate impact, right? Because they're marketed by a multinational company to do so, right? But let's say Florence and the Machine. These songs are not constructed the way normal songs are constructed. We're, we're talking about something that's, has influences that they're not, her intention you can kind of tell with some artists their intention is is what they're saying not how many people they're going to reach and they've managed to reach quite a few people Florence and the Machine is 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 as avant-garde today as say Kate Bush was in at the, at the beginning of her career uh you know as she was developing her identity in England and the United States like we're talking about and I don't mean to be negative at all, but we're, we're, we're talking about adhering to technology and, and the whims and the needs of a marketplace to make an artistic decision to do that. And I, I'm not an expert on that because I don't live in that world. What, is, what I'm influenced by is a whole other set of circumstances and experiences I've had since we last spoke, which is my uh, resolute commitment to my own musical language and manifesting it in the world where I'm most comfortable musically and sociopolitically and socially, which is the jam band world, which adheres to a whole different set of rules or operations or whatever you want to call it. Constraints. I don't know. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's incredibly uh, rich and vital world. And we have to remember that 
you know, the big jam bands are capable of selling out multiple nights in 20,000 seaters like fish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, wait a second before we go there, you get exposed to more musicians than just about anybody I know. And we're talking cross genres and we're talking cross demographic. You know, a lot of people and you know, a lot of really good musicians and you know, a lot of really good artists you get to play with pretty much the cream of the crop. You're always playing with great players. Now, what do you see that's different, or is there anything different with younger players, with a, a millennial generation of players? Is what they're learning, or is their technique different than what you're used to? It's not. There isn't a... The answer has to be subjective and nonspecific. And I'll tell you what, in the young millennial players, I'll give you an example. I just saw Dweezil Zappa's new band. I don't know anybody in that band. However, I was texting my dear friend, Matt Starr, who's a brilliant drummer, who's not a millennial, right? Uh, He's 20 years younger than me. I'm 63. I'm guessing Matt's pushing 40. Matt is currently playing with Ace Creeley and quite a few other people. He plays with Michael DeBar. And, and me in a new band called The Mistakes that um, my dear friend Michael DeBar is fronting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, saw, I, I saw that Matt was going to play this venue in Florida that I was at, and I texted him. I said, hey, you're going to play this gig with Ace Freely? Is this on your leg? Because Ace Freely has probably an interchangeable band, just like everybody else <laughs> these days. Not yeah. everybody, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And Matt and I entered into a conversation about the people in, in Dweezil's band. The level of musicianship that I saw in Dweezil's band, nobody in that band was 35 years old. A lot of them were seemed very young, like early 20s, right? So I, I bet some of them qualify for millennials. They are as good as any of Zappa's lineups. The Vi lineup with Scott Dunas on bass, as good as anybody in the Ian Underwood era, right? Anybody in the George Duke era. Mm. The, the keyboard player was playing all the Ruth Underwood, incredibly complex, um, mallet percussion parts like it was a walk in the park <laughs> and the vocals were incredible he had two female singers that were stunningly good he had a multi-instrumentalist guitarist percussionist keyboard player that was such a stunningly good singer the guy it was just great so one can easily deduce from that that the level of musicianship is staying the same and probably improving because of learning techniques Kids, young kids nowadays have had, if you're in your 20s, you know, definitely in your teens, you've had YouTube on all your life. So learning on YouTube is pretty amazing. The level of musicianship that I see coming out of USC in particular, I haven't seen UCLA, but I'm about to because I'm mentoring a woman who is a a Persian She's very familiar with Persian folk music and, and uh, American musical theater. She's an ethnomusicology major at uh, UCLA, but she's also a huge Led Zeppelin fan and Robert Plant fan. And so I'm beginning to meet her friends at UCLA. I haven't seen them or heard them play yet, but I'm sure I'll be seeing their ensembles play and stuff. In our charity work with K through six kids, we have a charity called Adopt the Arts. That It's Matt Sorum's charity. And in that world, in the K through six world, we can see it. Uh, the, the ability to learn is enhanced immensely by technology, yeah, yeah. by learning tools, by digital learning tools. That's definite. 
what is lacking are you and me know what it's like in high school. Well, and in junior high, in my case, maybe in your case too, to play four to six sets a night, maybe one night a week. I was very lucky to have that opportunity when I was in 11th and 12th grade. I started doing that in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Yeah, me too. You know, by the time you and I met in, in Boston, way back when, at Berkeley, if I wanted to, I could play four to six sets a night, six nights a week with one band. That's what's lacking with, these, with this generation. Uh, also, the emphasis on dancing is very powerful in country music, right? To be a live musician, these, the, the people that I know, the younger uh, guys and gals that are, that are getting the gigs with the country-oriented artists, whether they're cover bands or the, a lot of the national people use my friend Eric Himmel and his, his, his peers when they come, they have like a West Coast band, basically, so they don't, that they'll, they'll, they'll fly into L.A., and then they'll rehearse for three days with their West Coast people and do a bunch of regional gigs. And they're playing original songs. Yeah. But, but those people are, some of them, some of them will play maybe uh, four sets a night. Okay. But it's not six nights a week. It's two or three nights a week. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting in that they, uh, the majority of them don't have the opportunity to develop the muscles that you get from that. Yeah, but yeah, you know what? I know exactly what you mean. I'm going to play the devil's advocate for a second. One of the things that was great about playing four or six nights a week and playing, you know, four or five sets a night was the fact that, yes, you did get the muscle memory, you did get the experience on stage, and there was so much great about it. On the other hand, one of the big problems was the boredom that comes with it. I'm sure you experienced this, where you're playing the same thing over and over every night, and from the boredom also comes a certain degree of sloppiness. I think what happens is you get so good with your chops, you reach a point and you kind of go over the edge. And when you say there are some musicians that are playing, you know, that regimen two or three nights a week, I'm almost thinking that's better than if you're doing it four to six nights a week. That's just something that occurred to me while you're talking about that. You may be onto something absolutely correct and in the best of both worlds scenario when we review the certain evolutions of certain scenes dare i say like you talk about certain cities like i often think about things sir paul mccartney has said like one of the reasons he and john were so prolific was they would write songs and then tell the audience and whoever was employing them that oh this is by an american artist called so-and-so and they would make up a name or they would say it was an Everly Brothers song or a Buddy Holly song, right? Yeah. To fill their, to not only to fill out the night because they needed a lot of material, but also to play different songs than their competitors were playing. So what what I'm talking about is 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 something that also has to do with the idioms that you play, and everything is so fragmented now. Like for example, in the R&B community the R&B music community, the level of musicianship is so high with young gospel players, right, who are probably African-American, right? Yeah, yeah. So high. Their ability to play is like, they're functioning at the level that like competent fusion musicians are functioning at, 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 at in the 70s, right? The, the chops that they have and the complexity of the music that they'll play, right? And they bring that to popular music, right? Yeah. They bring that, they bring that to their gig. Uh, is it 
it, it, is it is it at the expense of of of, of um, what's the word? I don't want to say musicality because that's not it, but accessibility. Sometimes at the at the at the to my ear and to me, but that's generational. It, it it that level that degree of intense funk playing, like uh, and musicianship is really really impressive. Every time I see or meet any anybody coming from that world in, into what 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 I may be interacting with them in a mainstream sense or something. Are you familiar with the website called gospelchops.com? No, I'm not. It's pretty awesome where it's uh, basically lessons for gospel players and but from that part of the gospel world. So, you know, it's more the black church experience as opposed to the white church experience. And Yeah, it's usually different. Yes, usually different. But it's really a wonderful website, and just as you say, you look at some of these players and you go, wow, these guys are awesome. So it's worth checking out. Yeah, thank you. I'll I'll definitely check that out. When I was in the eighth grade, I was living on an army base in Munich, Germany. My dad was stationed there, and I got to play through a very wonderful set of circumstances one Sunday a month in, in eighth and ninth grade throughout the year at this huge gospel service, right? Mm-hmm. And I learned so much. My mom was like, yeah, we'll get you there. You know, you just go to Catholic Mass at 8.30, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get you over there, come to Mass with us, and then I'll drive you over there. And it was an amazing experience for me. But the level of the content of the music has evolved. This was, that was like 69, 70, 70. That basically, what we were doing, what I was lucky to get involved with was very similar to the Amazing Grace record by Live Record that Aretha Franklin made with her, with her dad, mm-hmm. with uh, but they brought in the New York heavy hitters. They brought in her band. It's like Bernard Perky. And it's a really good record. And Jerry Jamont stuff and Cornell Dupree. But my feeling is, is that music has evolved so radically. People's ability to, to the audience, we're having a very kind of like pinball conversation here. Talk about a lot of different idioms, a lot of different things. One of the things we have to also consider we're talking about are young players better or what is the difference between young and older players? One of the things that needs to be addressed is in what you make a decision as a musician, how willing are you to uh, embrace improvisational music in some idiom, right? Like young jazz musicians, for example, coming out of USC, right? Had the very, very good grace, very, very lucky to get, you know, very detailed reports from very prominent producers and artists, particularly Bob Mothersbrow, formerly of Devo, who does a lot of TV music, right? Yeah. And Denny Sywell from Wings. I play in a in a funk band, like a like an not really a funk band. It kind of sounds like Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs, and Englishman, and Delaney and Bonnie kind of music. With, with um, uh, it's kind of like a Southern Soul band. We do Ray Charles songs and stuff. Denny and Bob get to work with these USC guys a lot on, on film scores that, that, that Bob hires Denny for, right? Mm-hmm. And they're constantly, both these guys, telling me, gosh, these guys. So I checked them out. You know, you, you Google a guy or a gal, and, you t- and they're absolutely right. There's something, there's some serious mojo going on down at USC. John Molo, the great drummer who is, uh, was in, um, in, in Bruce Hornsby's band, Molo is, is, is got a band with a woman named Katie Sines from USC, who's actually also from Florida, and it's a jam band, and they're, she's, you know, where did she come from? She's 24 years old. 
She went to USC for music, and she holds her own with the cream de la creme up in up in uh, the Bay Area, or when she's sitting in down here with us in our in our little subculture, the jam band world. And so there is a lot of really really diverse and, 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 and a lot of gifted young musicians in every generation, I think. I think one of the fundamental differences, though, is very, very, very few people at that Viper Room jam that I like to go to about once a month. When I say to the, 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 the ringleader there, the wrangler, Eric Himmel, when I say, okay, Eric, I want to do Listen to Her Heart by Tom Petty, right? But at the end of it, just follow me and we're going into Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles. He, he'll, at first, was like a deer in the headlight. He'd be like, okay, how do we do that? And I said, you just react and respond to whatever's going on around you and create your contribution live in the moment, right? Like the idea of improvising and jamming is kind of a foreign idea to some people. Well, you know, music in general today lacks that. And I read a survey from Fender, for instance, where they found that there were so many fewer people that were buying electric guitars primarily because there were no guitar heroes and nobody wanted to learn how to solo how to improvise they were happy just playing chords and as a result an acoustic guitar actually served them better than an electric guitar but that goes to show you what the mindset is and it's a function of the music and i you know it's one of those things it's catch 22 unless the music changes then the musicians won't change and vice versa i'm not saying it's bad it's just different yeah, it's different. And you also have to take into consideration that the, this, the, I guess the term is substratification of the genres, right? Yeah. Like, I, 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 I always put my hand up and I go, well, tell that to the 13, uh, what, what's, how many people does Madison Square Garden hold? 24,000, something like that, yeah. Something like that. Whatever Madison Square Garden holds, Fish sold out, sold out 13 shows there on their last run. They've played Madison Square Garden more than Billy Joel or Bruce Springsteen. I, I'm with you, but here's the pushback on that that I can give you. Fish has been around for how long? 20 years? Much more. Okay. More than that, they have an older audience. So if we're talking about a newer artist, Post Malone, for instance, uh, Drake. Drake might be different. No, that's actually not true. There's a lot of those artists that are having trouble selling out multiple nights and in some cases even selling out a single night taylor swift couldn't sell out you know her whole tour it was very unfair because we were talking not unfair it was just ludicrous for me to talk about this stuff in the context of a guitar purchasing conversation i read all that stuff all day. it was on the cover of a bunch of magazines is the guitar dead is it over or not yeah well times change you know things yes probably guitar sales are going to drop continue to to diminish and stuff for, for a long time right my personal experiences with uh, what's going on in, in, in like from like the diverse group of people that I get to play with is where this conversation began. Basically, one of the things I'm learning is is that is that do I believe that it depends on what the what the musical language is, the intention of whoever's pointing pointing steering the ship. What's the intention of what musical language do they wish to establish? They need to choose the people to surround themselves with the people to create that. And what, what, what we're asking is, is well, uh, who has the skill sets to do certain jobs in a certain way? Is there musical language in their skill set 
correct to interact with an artist uh, artistically and more professionally, okay? And I'll give you an example. One of the things that's changed for me a lot in the past couple of years is I've been uh, uh, consistently playing with Bob Weir from Dead & Company and The Grateful Dead. And it has completely changed my perspective. I didn't play my first gig with him until I was more than 60 years old. And playing with him is a whole lot different than listening to that music. Or being around those guys and, and their culture is a whole lot different than going to a show as part of the culture, right? How so? Well, first of all, they're capable of selling out Dodge, not selling out every seat in Dodger Stadium, but playing to 50,000 people in one night mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Yep. It's pretty, pretty exciting. Played three shows at Hollywood Bowl last time they came to town. This time they did one show at Dodger Stadium. When you ask the people, I didn't ask Bob Weir specifically about why the change of venue, but when you talk to the other people that you have access to, they just shrug and go, I don't know, change it up, make a difference, see what happens. Hmm. That sense of adventure and willingness to try something new, I think is waning, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Also, musically, I've had to learn songs in large groups to continue to perform with Bob. He's currently playing with Don Was and Jay Lane in the exact same format that he plays with me and Wally Ingram, right? It's a very small band, and I play upright on at least half the set, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Don Was played upright the whole night, sounded great. And Jay Lane has been with Bob for off and on for 30 years now. He was in Rat Dog with him. And, and Jay's a brilliant drummer. He also plays in Primus, uh, or has, rather. In that world, now I'm privy to that world, and, and I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. I'm an insider. I have insider status there, much the same as the, 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 the offshoot of the Allman Brothers band that I, have, that I have a lot of insight into, Government Mule, to our association that we share, you and I, with Matt Apps, yeah. professional association, artistic and friendship. In, in, in the Grateful Dead world, or Dead and Company world, or Bob Weir solo world, the audience, uh, I just saw them play at the Ace Hotel, Theater at the Ace Hotel downtown in Los Angeles last week on Thursday, a week ago. The audience sang along with the verses and the choruses of four songs. Scarlet Begonia's Ripple and uh, Friend of the Devil. And he had Perry Farrell guest with Friend of the Devil. That demographic is an aging demographic. I'm not going to make an argument that, that this is, that, that, that this is a, a millennial phenomenon. But I will tell you something. My band is about to do a series of, uh, of monthly, a monthly, once a month residences out in Topanga Canyon, which is jam band central for uh, Los Angeles. It's a very small community here. There are, I play two festivals. I played two festivals this summer, small independent festivals with millennial jam bands that are just as excited about bending space and time and improvising as the dead were in 1966 or 67 when they were doing the acid test, right? Some of the influences that cross pollinate into it are hip hop based or dance music based. There's like an EDM twinge to a lot of what some of these bands do. And what I see is like a fractalization that's best explained by the way Tom or uh, Todd Rundgren says about music business. He's, Todd Rundgren says, and about artists and the relationship with the, with, the, with the audience, 
when Todd Rundgren blew up in the 70s, remember when we were young and I yeah. saw the light was top 40? You sure. knew it was amazing. God, this is amazing. This guy did this all by himself, just about, whatever. You got into him, you had to buy the albums. You read about him in Cream Magazine or Rolling Stone. Back then, Todd said there were 100 platinum artists and each one had a million fans, right? Now there's a million bands with 100 fans, each band. That's the flip. That's what we're looking at. Yeah, That's yeah. what these young bands that we play with in Topanga are faced with, right? And another phenomenon is, is I know this from being in the trenches, from about playing live music and trying to establish my own brand for the past five years. Um, I've done it twice. I've actually been doing it a long, longer than that. Um, the fact of the matter is, is most live music, whether we're talking about my friends that play uh, these country gigs all over the Southwest or, or play what's the new version of Top 40 where they're playing they're playing what's ever popular on uh, and streaming it on the show and they're playing it at Disneyland or at, or at Magic Mountain or whatever on a Sunday afternoon to somebody who's doing something like I'm doing, which is very jam band specific, right? The people that are playing to the biggest audiences are playing covers. Yeah. Plain and simple. They're either, they're either cover bands that are native to one specific brand, like a Tom Petty cover band, or uh, they're actually a Tom Petty tribute band with a look-alike, sound-alike singer, uh, or, or a, you know, or a country cover band that just plays whatever's current yeah, on yeah. the on the charts. So that one of the differences between the evolution of the great English musicians of the first English invasion, the the British invasion of the '60s, and each wave that followed after that, and the differences between how those musicians came up and how their American peers came up was a lot of them weren't trapped like the Beatles in playing four to six night at, at the, at, at the Kaiser Keller in Hamburg. Right. A lot of them were playing pub scene in, in England where your originality was encouraged or whatever, or the touring scene. If you had a hit record, you were on like, it still is like that over there. Originality was encouraged and embraced. Yeah. Right. Definitely. And, and audiences, as audiences expected it. Whereas in, in America, in the U.S., in North America, you, if you wanted to get out and work, you're, you and I would have had a very, very different career path had we said, I'm just going to be a singer-songwriter. I'm playing my own original music. I'm not going to play in any cover bands. Every band that I played in coming up that had original music aspirations, we didn't disguise that, but we, we attempted to merge that with making a living. Yeah. Going out and playing, making a living with a day job. Very difficult, and that's I think one of the differences now. One of the differences now between back to our uh, younger musicians, twenty-something, thirty-something musicians versus my generation is a lot of those people cannot. It's a very, very small, small, select few that make a living exclusively playing music that don't have a day gig. Yeah, this is great. I have so much more I want to talk to you about, or we could have talked about, but running out of time. I really enjoyed this because. We went in a lot of different places, and it was very philosophical as compared to most of the interviews that I do. So it's very pleasurable. The other thing I want to say that's very different right now that has really got the attention of a lot of people is that across the different idioms, and I know I, just, I, I don't want to sound like I'm judgmental of anybody. This is an observation. There are potentially dire consequences 
for choices that are being made by huge groups of people like voting blocks down to your individual choices, right? And one of the differences that I can see between musicians, younger musicians, and people that are, say, in my age group is that there is a, a, a vacuum of socially responsible artists that manage to do what Taylor Swift did, right? Mm. Where they're willing to say, this is how I feel about this, and I'm willing to risk this. And one of the reasons I think is because Dixie Chicks were penalized so intensely when they, when they stood for something, yeah, right? Yeah. And I'm not trying to polarize people. I'm not, everybody has the right to believe in whatever they have to believe in, but basic well-being of the majority of people, not only in the United States, but it, on this planet is precarious right now. Environmental issues are so profound right now. And a lot of people just don't have the time in every age group. Not only, this isn't younger versus older. I'm talking to my peers, to you, to me, to everybody. We really, really have to take responsibility as individuals with our art, with our commerce, how we talk to people for the fundamental well-being of, of everything that's going on right now. Like, I think of the no nukes movement. Maybe it was because it was easier to make a big footprint, how that unified artists. I long for that across all genres, across everybody from the, the avant-garde hip-hop community to the bluegrass community. I long for some sort of unified thread that says, wait a minute, let's take responsibility, not for our own personal lives, be being aware that we need to make decisions that are concerned with the stewardship of the planet, not only environmentally, but psychologically, spiritually, politically. And let's, let's do that. Let's really use music the way it's been proven since the beginning of time, that it is an unstoppable unifying force for good. if like minds join together to do that. You can find out more about Paul at facebook.com forward slash Paul ill. It's all one word. P a U L I L L Paul ill. Also, find out about his killer band, Disreputable Few, at DisreputableFewMusic.com. Thanks for listening and being my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby Osinski.